Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. Hi, welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast. I'm Kristen Williams, and we are in our second installment of our member-to-member case studies podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Baradas, who's the managing partner of WealthPoint. And Ryan has an interesting twist on the QLS strategy that he's here to tell us about. So, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kristen. You you and your team have come up with a, a twist on the QLS strategy. Right. Correct. Yeah, we um, QLS is a great tool for maximizing the net that you can receive out of your retirement plan or maximizing that to heirs. But it also we kind of stumbled uh, accidentally. In fact, uh, Phil Spalding did on how this could really help enhance the assets that people want to leave to charity and also allow them to control the timing. That sounds great. So how does it work? Well, I think what's always helpful for me is when I hear a story. So we had a a client, uh, Jim and Laura, they were in the early 60s, and they had accumulated a pretty sizable estate. But through the planning that they already had in place, they felt like they had provided a pretty substantial inheritance for their children already. And so they were looking to leave a good portion of their existing estate to uh, their favorite philanthropic organization. Um, And since they really didn't need their retirement plan that had approximately $3 million in it, they didn't need it for income. Their tax and legal advisors had recommend that they leave their retirement plan at their death uh, to charity. And what's really frustrating is they'd really love to give that balance to charity today, but because of the income tax deduction limitations and or the QCDs or qualified charitable deduction limitations of $100,000, they're really limited on what they can transfer to their favorite philanthropic organization today. And so the charity kind of has to, it has to wait uh, until they pass away. And so they're forced to take required minimum distributions starting at age 72, I believe it is. Um, And then uh, they plan to then uh, leave the balance of it to charity and they can give a hundred thousand of whatever they're, they're required to take, but the balance of it is subject to the regular income tax de- uh, deduction limitations, which are approximately 60 cents on the dollar. So we decided to take a look at QLS as a potential strategy for this. And w- really, the way it works is it begins by changing the investments inside of the qualified retirement plan. And we have to make sure that we have a profit sharing plan. So the profit sharing plan is uh, has season money in it and is allowed to purchase life insurance. And we pay two premiums because you have to pay a sa- series of premiums into a, a life insurance policy. And this policy, unlike the, the wealth transfer approach to QLS, we're not trying to maximize the death benefit. We're trying to get a combination of a death benefit and income, because what we're going to try to do is replace the amount of income that charity would have gotten over the, the client's lifetime through distributions out of the policy and provide a sizable endowment to uh, to the charity itself. So traditionally, we'll use single life insurance uh, for this type of transaction, and it's not a maximum death benefit. What we're trying to do is get a combination of death benefit and income. And so we, t- instead of a- guessing would 
Now, I'm guessing that sort of softens the blow. A lot of times charities don't love life insurance because they have to wait so long to get some sort of a benefit. So it sounds like the way you're designing the policy allows them to have sort of lifetime distributions as well as death benefit. Exactly. And so what what we're aiming to do is match 100% dollar for dollar what the projected RMDs would be uh, starting at age 72. And then whatever's left over in the death benefit will then go to them as an endowment at the at the passing of the one individual instead of both as well. So so instead of investing $3 million in stocks, bonds, and and uh, uh, other securities, we're investing in life insurance. And then what happens is uh, the clients uh, then turn around and they buy that policy out of the plan. It's the only thing that can be removed from a retirement uh, plan tax-free via a bona fide sale. And we do it for the perk value, which in these types of contracts is going to be somewhere around 80, 85 cents on the dollar. We'll call it 80 cents in this case. And so they're going to buy that policy that they put $3 million into for uh, $2.4 million. And so now they have the policy in their hands. And uh, But the $2.4 million that they put back into the plan is back at square one. So we've got to do something about that. But the first thing they're going to do is they're going to gift that policy to charity today, which is going to generate a large income tax deduction. And lo and behold, the income tax deduction is identical to what the purchase price is because that's the fair market value uh, of the policy itself. So instead of leaving the 2.4 million inside of the the retirement plan to have the exact same problems, what we're going to do is immediately convert it into a Roth. And we're going to do the Roth conversion so that 2.4 million, instead of being subject to income and and capital gains taxes like it was before, can now grow tax-free. And so now they have a a tax liability on that Roth conversion, and it's approximately a million-dollar tax liability. But they're not going to pay the tax because they're going to offset that income tax liability with the uh, with the uh, the amount that they gifted to charity. And they can either do that all at once, depending upon their earned income, or through partial Roth conversions over time. And so now, at the end of the day. What ends up happening is the the charity ends up with a lot more. They they end up with 137% more than what they would have gotten had they just waited, uh, had gotten the required minimum distributions, the $100,000 QCD, and then whatever was left over in the plan uh, after they passed. Um, but more importantly, the client also wins because they've now converted assets that were already subject to income uh, tax and capital gains tax uh, during their lifetime into a Roth, which then can also be stretched out for a period of time. I think it's limited to 10 years, according to the new SECURE Act rules, uh, but it, they've created a tax-free asset. So what we've effectively done is move two assets from the taxable world. Um, into the charitable world and the tax-free world um, without uh, causing any problem. And the charity now does not have to wait until they die. They get the stream of income out of the policy or distributions, planned distributions out of the policy during the the client's lifetime. But then they also receive a a pretty handsome uh, endowment at their death because there's still a pretty substantial death benefit uh, available for them. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a really elegant way to solve an 
um, unpleasant income tax situation and at the same time fulfill a, a client's charitable interests and you know leave a nice endowment to the to the organization. So thank you for sharing that idea with us today. You bet. And you were telling me that you have some videos and educational information that will be ready for our listeners who I'm sure want to learn more about QLS and the charitable components of it. We will link to those videos in the email that launched this podcast. So thanks for sharing the story today, Ryan. You got it. Thanks for having me, Kristen. So I have Zach Rose of the Rose Group. Zach's kind of come on and talk about a really interesting business sort of family equalization case he's working on right now. So Zach, thanks for joining us today. No, thank you. Yeah, so we, uh, we're we working on a pretty large family right now that owns a, a large business. Um, they milk cows and pretty big operation. And uh, it's a unique case because the father who started the company brought his two of his sons into the business and they are uh, now basically part owners of roughly 30 to 25% each, each, and then the rest is owned by the dad. Um, but there's also two other siblings um, that are not involved in the family business. And this whole case started um, with a way to try to equalize the father's estate as well as <clears throat> kind of divest some of his interest in the business. And then also uh, we needed to perform a buy-sell agreement and uh, implement some life insurance policies on the two sons that are in the business right now to cover uh, the buy-sell agreement should something happen to them. So it's been a, a case with lots of layers, uh, lots of moving parts, and we're kind of in the middle of it right now. But um, it's it's been a neat experience to work through it. That's great. And you were telling me um, about some of that Cayman insurance and sort of the the way that they want to sort of use it for a couple of different purposes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so part of the, as, as we've had discussions on this, uh, the brothers obviously knew that there was a need um, through advice from their counsel and, and their, their CPA, that there was a need for, um, for some insurance in place um, for the buy-sell agreement should something happen to one of them. But they were also interested in trying to figure out a way to use the policies as an accumulation vehicle. So we were able to uh, design a few strategies, a few scenarios for them that they're currently trying to work through. Um, basically where we're overfunding, doing either a three to a five pay on a, on a, on a large IUL that, that satisfies the death benefit that they need, but also creates um, a large amount of cash, you know, in 15, 20, 25 years for them mm -hmm. to pull out and use, you know, for retirement or whatever they, they feel like they right. need. And the unique structure we did with that was we put the insurance inside an LLC that the, both of the boys own so that, death benefit and cash value can easily flow out of it. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Which was a key piece of the planning too. So we could kind of separate, uh, you know, the business from the insurance partnership um, so that the big deal was making sure that the policies were portable. So when they, if they got bought out or they bought each other out, they were able to take the policies with the cash inside of them as well. So that was a big deal. Right. And the other thing that, I think was interesting. I, I think you started talking about it is that the business in dad's estate has no basis really, right? Or negative basis. And so 
the planning that we're doing has to revolve around leaving the business in that state, right? Yeah, so he's actually got a, a negative uh, negative capital right now for, for a pretty large sum. So it kind of limited us on, on what we could do from an estate planning um, you know, standpoint as far as you know, should, could we transfer the sales, discount them, transfer or transfer the shares, the father's shares of the business or actually buy them out? But that negative capital kind of created some barriers for us. So it's forcing us to look at, um, you know, a few different alternatives, whether that being that the boys actually buy a policy um, on their dad, basically buy him out at his death. Um, but we're, we're trying to work through that right now. It's a little complicated. Yeah, it is complicated, but as you've heard me say, life insurance is always the solution, right? That's right. <laughs> and it's just for us, you know, generally the default is let's move the big business, which is the biggest asset out of the estate. And in this situation, it's been fun because you have to shift from what would be more the traditional kind of default planning of move out the business and, you know, try to figure out how do we equalize the estate and also get the basis step up. So that's made it fun. For sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing this idea with us today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Today, I'm joined by Ben Cronish, who is a partner at Cronish Associates. Ben is part of our member to member case study series, and he's here to talk about a case success story that he's had lately. So Ben, thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for asking me to be part of this. It's my pleasure. I look forward to hearing what you've got. Okay. So uh, I guess my story is one that um, came about or started about five years ago. Uh, I had been building a relationship with a well-known money manager here in New York over the last 10, 15 years. And I finally got that call that we all wait for where he said, Ben, I think I've got a situation that you'd like to get involved with. And it involved two well-known individuals uh, who are in the uh, private equity space, who had between the two of them 19 life insurance policies with total death benefit in excess of $400 million. And he asked me if I could do a review. And of course, I said I could do a review. Uh, and I worked on that uh, over the course of roughly eight months and it was a very, very complicated situation, not just because of the volume of policies involved, but because these policies were owned by different trusts, set up under different split dollar regimes, uh, and, and just a very complicated, uh, a very complicated scenario. And, um, you know, like like most of us, I think I refused to accept the fact that I couldn't get this done and ultimately um, realized that I was doing a disservice to my relationship with this manager by trying to persist at something that I just couldn't possibly manage properly. Uh, but just before I was about to throw up the white flag, uh, I was introduced to the people at Financial Architects in Boston. And after several meetings with them and finding that our philosophies kind of meshed, uh, I asked them if they would be of assistance with this case. Um, as it turned out, they were very familiar with the case. Uh, Dave Carroll had actually been a Hancock uh, product developer back when some of these policies were created 
for these clients. So it was something they were uh, well acquainted with. And to make a long story short, uh, the bottom line is that we were able to sort of slay the dragon. Uh, we, we restructured these 19 policies. We replaced loan scenarios that were internal loans on the policies at seven, eight percent with finance structures at LIBOR plus 100 points. Uh, we, we, we hit a home run. And I think the lesson in this for me, as well as for perhaps some of the people listening, is that despite our sort of nature to want to be lone wolves and be out there uh, and take down the prey, no matter how big it may be. I think there are certainly times where we have to recognize that we just don't have all of the availability to do that. And the net result has been wonderful for me, uh, wonderful for the client, great for my relationship with the advisor. And um, to me, that's just one of those scenarios where I think uh, you have to kind of step out of your comfort zone a little bit and admit when uh, you don't personally have the resource to tackle a scenario and, and go to the people who do. Thanks, Ben. It is nice to be reminded about the power of Partners Financial and that, you know, as individuals, sometimes we're not strong enough or resourced enough to handle a thing. But when we work together and, you know, rely on the, the partnership that we have with our fellow firms, we can really take care of what a client needs and, and be real, uh, provide a lot of value to the situation. Yeah. I mean, that was the lesson for me, really. I, I've, I've been in the business of a very long time and uh, always survived and did quite well, you know, by sort of being able to manage on my own. Um, but I think we all have to recognize that there are certainly times where two heads are better than one. And in this case, working with a firm that was really built for this type of business um, allowed us to do a job that has hopefully put us in a scenario where we can have bigger and better cases than this going forward. And, and my relationship with the people at FAP um, has developed to the point where we now work regularly on cases, um, not all of them of this size, but all of them a good size. And um, it's, it's great to be able to have that kind of a resource available when you need it. Right. And, you know, you also mentioned the financial advisor that you'd worked a long time to build a relationship with, and that relationship started to get sort of uncomfortable initially. And, and then it sounded to me like by you know, doing this partnership, not only were you able to sort of save that relationship, but strengthen it and, and you know, work with that financial advisor more efficiently. Absolutely. You know, I, I, as I said, I tried to develop this relationship for a long time and I got that call and, you know, it was sort of like he was giving my, he was giving me my audition and I wanted to perform as well as possible. So I really didn't want to blow it. Uh, and I think I took a big chance when I was deciding to go back to him uh, with the people from financial architects when we were now six eight months into this review process and essentially say, I want to completely shift gears. I want to bring in people who can really do this properly. And thankfully he, he accepted that. Um, I suspect he could have been quite frustrated and said, you know, I'm not working with you, but he accepted that based on our relationship. And at the end of the day, uh, after our meeting with the client, when this was really uh, consummated, you know, he came up to us and said, you guys hit it out of the park. And that that was that was really a great feeling to know that that we had done the right job. He recognized it. And 100 percent, our relationship has strengthened as a result. That's wonderful. That's a great result. So thank you so much for sharing that story with us today. Of course, it's my pleasure.